Hello, welcome to The Hot Seat. I'm Martin Rogers, here with Professor Tony Travers to discuss the election campaign so far. Welcome, Tony. Hello. So first of all, what have we learned from the campaign so far? Well, I think what we've learned from the campaign so far is it's probably gone on a bit too long. Uh, I mean, it's not altogether the party's fault, but a combination of the fact that we always knew when the general election would be and that the natural um, extent of the conference, uh, of the um, campaign has been to really to last five weeks, but actually it's longer than that again because many of the media outlets sort of started on January the 2nd. So whilst we're not yet in the American world of having year-long or further presidential uh, campaigns, we are now with a much longer campaign. So I think that the parties have found it difficult to keep momentum up throughout what is now proving to be a very long campaign. Now are the two largest parties' campaigns going, which are having a good campaign or a bad campaign? Well, I think, as with so many things, you have to compare the campaigns with uh, expectation and starting point. And if we just take Labour first, I think the, you know, Ed Miliband has had poor ratings in many polls up to the start of the election campaign. And the Conservatives have decided that, you know, his weakness was something they could exploit. Actually, what appears to have happened is that as he's been more exposed in things like the leaders' debates or semi-debates, actually that sort of helped him. He's come across as perfectly adept and able, and that's probably lifted the Labour Party a bit, whereas the Conservatives, who I think were going heavily on personality and trying to you know, major on the fact that Cameron was more popular than the Conservative Party and certainly more popular than Miliband, that they were going to go on personality. And I don't think that's fully worked. And if you look at the Conservative campaign, they appear to be trying to change it, to make it a bit more optimistic, a bit more about policy. Now, that might yet work, but I think so far, uh, by common consent, the Conservatives probably haven't quite gotten into their stride. So is there an extent to which the Conservatives' attempt to talk down Miliband has led to expectations of him being so low that he, having exceeded them, couldn't really lose? I think there is an element of truth in that. I think that, um, you know, on the long run up to the election, two, three years ago, you know, Conservatives were quoted regularly as saying, you know, Ed Miliband's our greatest asset, we need to keep him as leader and all of that stuff, which you, you kind of get between elections. Actually, what's, what's happened is that he's risen in stature, or at least even just performing perfectly normally in, 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 in front of the public, has helped him perform above expectation. So in that sense, yes, he, he, in a sense, having the bar set low probably has been an advantage for Ed Miliband. Mm. So this week the IFS have come out and said that the public have been left in the dark by the party's plans for deficit reduction. Is there a great deal of devil in the detail or do we just not know and the detail hasn't been published and it will all come out in the wash after the election? I think the IFS has been doing a brilliant job in um, sounding an alarm bell here. He, it and its director, Paul Johnson, have been very visible, as they often are in these things. Um, and they've made the point that if you look forward from where we are, um, the parties, all of them really, are promising that most taxes won't go up except for the very, very rich um, and that spending can go up here and there 
and they're not really talking about the consequences for the squeeze on public spending, whoever wins, um, between now and 2020. And I think they're absolutely right to have done that. And there is almost a conspiracy within the parties, I mean, not a formal one, but an, an agreement, an unwritten agreement, an unstated agreement, not to talk about the squeeze on the parts of public spending that will be squeezed because none of the parties are willing to put up the taxes on, on, put up taxes on average or just above average earners. And the fact is the state will have to shrink and they're not talking about that. So I think the IFS is spot on. Has that situation been helped or hindered by the relatively higher profile given to the um, anti-austerity groups, the Greens, Clyde and the SNP in the debates, which aren't focusing so much on a serious um, proposition to be in government and to balance the books, where they are able to make unfunded promises from, from the left? Has that helped or hindered the sort of standard of the economic debate generally? Well, there's no doubt you're right. I mean, that the um, sort of uh, the smaller parties uh, like the SNP, Plaid Cymru and the Greens on the left, they're all on the left and they'd say that themselves, have, because they know they're not going to form the government on their own, they can be more about aspiration, ideal and values than about balancing the books. Having said that, whether the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, if they were simply facing each other um, and nobody else, would have been that much more open about their own problems in trying to create effectively to, you know, what they're trying to do really is offer us Sweden or France's public services with America's taxes. And they've been doing that for some time, long before the great surge for the SNP and co. So um, it probably makes it a puts a bit more pressure. And the word austerity, which was, you know, when it was debated during the opposition, uh, the challengers debate the other day, um, there were lots of people searching online, you know, what, was, what is austerity? And uh, I think that the, the desire to kill off austerity and get rid of it, which the smaller parties have been pushing, um, I think it's going to be harder to do for the major parties than the whole election is Suggesting, and I doubt that would have been radically different, even if the SNP and the Greens and Plaid were not pushing their particular positions. So there's been some YouGov polling come out this week, uh, saying that the public uh, have heard too much about Scotland, or feel they've heard too much about Scotland, but haven't heard enough about other important policy areas, especially defence and education. So why, especially defence and Britain's role in the world in foreign policy? Why has that been sidelined so much? Well, I think defence uh, has been sidelined for the simple reason it's one of those things where public spending cuts will take place and the politicians just don't want to talk about it. None of them are prepared to commit themselves to the UK spending 2% of GDP on defence, which is sort of you know, what their NATO obligation would uh, suggest they should. And they won't do that. Uh, so there's been a bit of a debate about Trident, and that's mostly been provoked by the SNP and the Greens, but beyond that, um, silence. So I think that it's, it is true to say that things like defence, international development, foreign policy more generally, haven't featured in the election, and that's, you know, odd, um, though explicable, given that what politicians feel much more comfortable doing is talking about the NHS uh, and 
to some extent, though lesser, to a lesser extent, education. And of course, the other thing that they all try to steer around is immigration, because that's, you know, those are the things that the public is interested in with the economy. So we've, polls are reporting quite a large number of undecideds at this point, but quite a relatively low number of switches between Labour and Conservative, which is the usual feature of an election campaign. So why are there so many people undecided and so few switching between the two major parties? I think that the, I mean, the overall two-party vote and both the individual Labour and Conservative Party vote is shrinking. So there are, you're nearer the hard core, the inner core of their voters, and therefore I think they are probably people who are the remaining tribal folk and perhaps less likely to switch in the way in the past people who'd voted Conservative last time might vote Labour this time or vice versa, depending which way the election was going. And what you've got instead is a huge amount of choice, and indeed more than that, tactical choice. So, you know, if you're in a, a, a Scottish constituency and you want to stop the SNP and you're a Labour voter, in some places you might vote Conservative. In other places, if you're a Conservative vote, you might vote or you might vote Labour. So I think the undecidedness probably comes from the fact that not only are there fewer tribal voters than there once were, but many of them are thinking, you know, I'll vote tactically or in a, in a, in a way that maximises the power of my vote to stop something rather than to deliver something. And they may still be trying to work that out. So are we now seeing the, effectively the end of the two-party system? And is this likely to lead to a change in the voting system, perhaps? Well, it is true. The two parties, the Labour and Conservative, Conservative and Labour Party vote, was as high as 97% in the 1950s. Hard to believe that. In the 2010 election, it was 65%. Now, the polls suggest that this time it might just go up a fraction, up to 67, 68, 69%, even, even 70, perhaps, clip 70. But even so, that's way below where it was in the past. Many constituencies, um, in region by region, are not Conservative Labour. But there'll be Conservative Liberal challenges in the West Country, Labour and the Conservatives in London, uh, Labour and the Liberal Democrats, or the SNP and Labour in Scotland. So, you know, it's all very different from the past. Now, whether this means PR depends on, you know, how far the grandees in the Labour and Conservative parties eventually come to think that there's some merit for them in changing. Now, they might eventually think, at least they try it for local government. I mean, I think there are, actually myself, I think there are some reasonable arguments for uh, the Conservative and Labour parties moving to PR in local government because it would allow them to rebuild their base in places where it's died out, uh, but they could still keep first-past-the-post for general elections. But let's see, you know, I mean, it's hard to exaggerate how far particularly Conservative MPs, but to some extent many Labour MPs, born and brought up in the first-past-the-post world, find it hard to move on and away from it. Great. Thank you very much, Tony. You're off the hot seat. Thank you.